morning. Good morning, everybody. How we doing? It is great to see you in the house of the Lord if you're visiting. Hi, my name's Mark, and I'm your next 40 minutes or so. So let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for a chance to open your word and uh, to just hear from you. Uh, we've sensed your presence even as we've sang these songs. Uh, indeed, God, um, if more of you means less of us, take everything. Uh, we truly believe that uh, all of you is all that we need. And uh, so help us, God, to get to the point in our lives with you where we truly surrender everything and follow you uh, into your will uh, for who you've made us to be. I pray that for our church as well. I pray for that for this time that we're together. Uh, as always, God, would you push me aside and speak in my place and reveal to us the things that you uh, use your servant Paul to write to his friends in Ephesus. Reveal the truths that are timeless and the things that we're meant to experience in our lives as a church and as followers of you. Um, uh, but make this a rich time of hearing from you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's only been about a, a week and a half since Thanksgiving. I think I told you last week my kids uh, did the Thanksgiving meal at our, our house and did an excellent job. Uh, but as with any Thanksgiving, uh, the dreaded time after the meal always arrives, the time where you have to clean up. I don't know what it is about Thanksgiving meals, but every dish in my house is dirty at the end of that thing. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, I didn't even know we had some of these pots, but they've been brought out for these festivities and now they need to be clean. We were cleaning all the dishes and, and getting the house back in order. When it came to my attention that uh, the garbage disposal, and what I'm about to describe is a very American problem, I recognize that. Don't cry for me, Argentina. But the garbage disposal, which has this little button next to the, in, in our configuration, there's a little button that turns the garbage disposal on right next to our faucet on our sink. And as I was smashing that button, Nothing was happening. This was a problem because my kids didn't know that we try not to put a lot of food down our garbage disposal, septic tank and all that stuff, uh, but they had crammed a bunch of stuff down there. So w we have some issues. I'm either going to have to go down there with my hand and dig all that stuff out, or we're going to get the garbage disposal working, and I prefer the latter. Are you with me? So you've uh, heard my history on home improvement. On, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, but I start walking through the things that I know to do. I've, I've worked with garbage disposals before, and I, I thought maybe it just needed to be reset. If you don't know this, there's a little button underneath your garbage disposal. If you just press that a lot of times, it's all you need to do. That was not the case in this situation. I also uh, took out the Allen wrench that it, if you put it in there and kind of crank, sometimes it gets jammed, and you can kind of crank the, the gears to the, so they can get going again. Uh, turn it, and it was just fine, so that wasn't the problem either. I, I just want to let everybody know. I checked to make sure it was plugged in. Okay, everybody that was wondering that? There's a little plug under your sink, and usually your garbage disposal is plugged into that. And still no dice. I'm mashing that button. Nothing's happening. I go out to the, to the fuse box uh, or the breaker box, whatever you'd like to call it, and I, uh, uh, I hang out there. Someone made fun of me for calling it a fuse box. I guess that's an old statement. Do you guys call it a fuse box? All right, all right. Whatever, whatever. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, that's the guy who made fun of me. Anyway, uh... <clears throat> I go check, make sure the breaker hasn't, and, and that's, my, that's my last play. That's all I got left. Maybe the breaker's been thrown. The breaker's not been thrown. I have no idea. So here's what I do. When I get frustrated at these points, I just go in and I try to push whatever the button is harder. I'm just, I mean, I'm just going maniac on this thing. I'm just smashing this button. And then finally, as I'm half yelling, half praying uh, for God to bring the solution, he points me to the corner of our kitchen where there's this one little socket next to this one little switch plate. Um, that uh, I always forget is there because I turn the garbage disposal on with the button, uh, but it is the actual on and off switch for the garbage disposal. 
And my children, who have not frequented our house a ton after you know, going to college and moving out, had tried to turn the lights on in our kitchen uh, and had thought that that would do the trick. And, and when they realized that that was not the switch, they just left it in the off position. And so I'd spent the last half hour of my life trying to fix a garbage disposal that wasn't broken. I was elated and furious at the same time. Who's been there? Anybody been there? <laughs> Mostly elated, though. Because as soon as I flipped that switch, the garbage disposal roared to life. And disaster, and this American problem, was averted. Yeah. Uh, power, if you're not clear on this, welcome to the United States in 2018. Power is almost always associated with a switch. Uh, Everything else in whatever you're trying to use can be in perfect working order. Everything can be in place and all systems go. But if, if you don't have the switch turned on, uh, whatever it is that you're trying to work with is just not going to work. The same goes uh, for the Christian life. As we've been talking about the power of God in this series that we're calling Power Up, we have, hopefully over our four weeks together, deduced this, that apart from the power of God, uh, nothing happens in a Christian's life. Nothing happens in a church's life. Like everything else can be in order. We can have all the things lined up, ducks in a row, uh, in our Christian experience, in our prayer life, in our study life. But if we haven't accessed the power of God, if the power of God is not flowing through us, we're just religious. We're just busy. We're not truly experiencing the life that God has for us in his power. If we as a church have everything lined up, do all the right programs, have something for all the age groups, draw big crowds, fill parking lots, but we somehow miss out on the power of God, we're just busy. We're just religious. I want to talk some more today about this power that God gives us to live life, this power to accomplish his will. The power of God realized in our lives. The question I want to answer today is, uh, as we get to talk about the power to know God, is, is how do we tap into the power of God? And quick answer to that is this. Prayer is the primary means by which we gain access to the power of God. As we study this morning, we're going to come to a part of this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Ephesus, and we're going to read his prayer for them. It's the second prayer that he's written in the first three chapters. Prayer seems to be an important part of Paul's life. In chapter 1, verse 15, he, he's, he finishes a long run of talking about the amazing grace and goodness of God and his, all the things that he's done for us. He's uh, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's adopted us, predestined us, chosen us, all these amazing things. And then he goes to this. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you before God, and I remember you in my prayers. We uh, studied last week and. Chapter 3, verse 1, he starts with this phrase, for this reason. He doesn't get to whatever he's going to say. He goes on this huge 13-verse tangent, but he gets back to it here in verse 14, and he says, oh, yeah, what I meant was, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he reports in the second time, for the second time in three chapters his prayers for his friends in Ephesus. He does this because in both of his prayers he emphasizes, could you believe it, the power of God in their lives. And in the prayer in chapter 1, he says this, starting in verse 18, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, he's speaking of our 
knowledge, our cognition, our comprehension. He says, I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable, even though we can't know it, it's immeasurable, but I pray that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. I, I pray that you would understand and realize what we have if we tap into the power of God. He goes on in this prayer that we're going to read today, and he says, I pray that according, verse uh, 16 of chapter 3, that according to the riches of his glory, of God's glory, God might grant you to be strengthened, what is it, with power through the Spirit in your inner being. How do we tap into the power of God? Prayer is the primary means by which we gain access to his power. That's not the only means. Is anybody grateful that God doesn't hold up for our prayers and wait for on our prayers for him to exercise his power in our lives? Uh, some of us would never experience it. Uh, because unfortunately, if you're like me, a lot of times you neglect to pray. Or it's the last thing you think to do. Praise God. He doesn't wait for us to pray to show us his power. Everybody grateful for that? But a lot of times he does wait for us to pray. In order for him to show his power in whatever situation that we're praying about. We're, we see that evidenced in scripture over and over again, that prayer precedes the enactment of God's power. This guy, Nehemiah, was just minding his own business as a captive uh, in the court of uh, the Persian king, and, and he's just hanging out, and he hears about the walls of his city, his native city, his city that he's never been to, uh, Jerusalem, uh, but they're on the ground, and, and God stirs his heart, and he knows he has to do something, and so he's going to ask the king, who he has no right to ask anything of, for the means by which he could go and rebuild the walls of his city. Uh, but if you read Nehemiah chapter 1, it's mostly Nehemiah's prayer. He says, God, it's not right that your city's walls are on the ground. Give me favor before the king. And if you know the story, he goes before the king the next day, and the king says, why the long face, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah tells him the whole thing. And the king, prompted by the power of God, grants Nehemiah all that he wishes. And Nehemiah goes back and builds the walls. Remember Jesus was hanging out with the disciples, he was teaching, and uh, tons of people were coming, more and more gathered uh, on that day. He taught all day long, and then it was time for everybody to go get, uh, get something to eat, and the disciples came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you got to get these guys out of here. There's just way too many of them. Tell them to go to Subway or something, but we don't have anything for them to eat here. <clears throat> and Jesus says, no, 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 you provide. And you know the story. They went out in the crowd. They couldn't find anything. Whatever had been brought had been eaten except for this one kid, he still had uh, two fishes and five loaves. And he offered them to Jesus. And Jesus says, perfect. And you remember what Jesus did? He put down the, the lunch, the fish and the loaves, and it says that he gave thanks. He lifted them before his father, and he says, okay, God, Father, do what only you can do. And he made golden corral. <laughs> he just went all buffet on that thing, right? And thousands of people ate to their full, and 12 baskets were recovered at the end. And, and it was all after a prayer had been prayed. Hmm. Now, that's not to say that our prayers are simply quarters in a machine. Just so you know, when you pray for stuff, be prepared uh, that you might not always get what you pray for. Because God's smarter than you and me. And so you may be praying for things that you think you need, but God knows that is not what you need. And so he grants us what we need. In fact, I would, I would tell you this. Anytime you pray for the power of God in your life, always pray with this qualifier. God, your will be done. Isn't that what Jesus taught his disciples pray? Yeah? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you pray when you ask for God's power to be realized in your life. Lord, this is what I think. This is the power that I want. But your will be done. You reveal your power how you want so that your will is accomplished 
in my life. Whatever the case, prayer is the primary means, not the only, thankfully, but the primary means by which God reveals his power in our lives. So we should be a church that prays. We should be Christians that pray. We should be aware of the things that we should pray for, and we're going to go into some of those things today. We should understand that if God's power is accessed by prayer, we must pray. Not once in a while, just when things go bad type prayers. A lot of us are Hail Mary prayers. I know that's the church down the street, but uh, uh, we're just you know, asking for the miracle when things go wrong. But that's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. I'm talking about consistent, persistent, fervent, daily, effectual prayer for the power of God to be accessed and realized in our lives. Today we're going to see Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. It's uh, the second of his prayers that he's prayed in his letter to them. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is going to show up here on the screen in just a second. You're going to see it appear in this region. Yeah, see, told you. Um, but I want you to understand that as we read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this is really uh, every church's prayer for every church. It's our prayer for our church as we seek to access the power of God in our life as a church and in our lives personally as we follow Christ. Let's study these verses together. It starts out here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul's saying, hey, I pray for you guys. Uh, just of note in this one verse, understand that Jews uh, typically did not bow their knees when they prayed. If you remember the story of uh, Jesus sitting in the temple and he sees the Pharisee and the publican, uh, they're both standing at the front of the, tab- uh, front of the temple giving their prayers to God. Uh, this bowing thing was not a custom in the Jewish faith. In fact, uh, uh, the fact that Paul bows really goes to the, to the royalty of the one that he's praying to. He understands that God the Father is not just, you know, this God who's chosen him and he has these rights and, uh, you know, he deserves. He, he understands that humbly he has nothing before this holy God. And, and so the only posture that makes sense is knees, bend the knee to the God who is king. He also shows his earnestness. He's, he's trying to make sure the Ephesians know, I don't just kind of pray. I'm not just throwing up the, you know, the, the sort of prayers. I'm, I'm praying passionately for these things to occur, occur in your church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom, verse 15, every family in heaven and on earth is named. God is the name giver. That's a position of authority. If you get your name from someone, that someone was a part of your creation. Anybody here as parents name your kids? Then just kind of leave it to the nurses to do? Yeah. That shows ownership. That shows authority. And what Paul's bringing out here is that every family in heaven, speaking of the angelic uh, being, speaking of those who have preceded those he was writing to uh, into glory. He says, every family in heaven and on earth is God's. He is the creator of, the progenitor of every family. He's the owner of, the authority of every family. He says, I pray to that God. And what he is going to share next is what he prays, and it's going to answer for us this question. How do we pray the power of God into our church? Four things. The first thing that we do is we ask for the Spirit's strength to let Christ rule our hearts. Can I ask you to do this in this coming week and the weeks to come? Whenever you pray, would you start with this one? Would you ask for the Spirit's strength, for the Spirit's power to lead you to make Christ the ruler of your heart? 
Pray for all your kids and for all those other things that you're used to praying for. Pray for your ends to be, you know, bigger than your needs. And pray all those things. Absolutely, pray all those things. Ask, right? But would you remember for our church and for yourself to pray for the Spirit's strength to let us allow Christ to rule in our hearts? Look what it says here. It says in verse 16, I uh, bend my knee, I bow my knees, and I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your insides, in your inner being, so that, or with the effect that, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We can go back to that uh, verse 16. He says, I I pray that according to the riches of his glory. What a great line. Did you know that uh, God's glory and um, God's ability is rich beyond understanding? It's immeasurable. Like when you talk to God and ask God for things, it's not like you, you should be wondering if whether or not if you could do this. You ever, ever come to someone and you're not sure if they're gonna be able to you know, fulfill your request? Hey, I don't know if you can do this, but could you? And then you throw it out there and they say, well, no, I can't, or oh yeah, I can. And sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. Oh, you can, great. You should never come with that thinking towards your God. Now he may not choose to answer your prayer, See what we talked about earlier, because his will might be different for your life. But never think, ever, ever, ever think that God is unable. As we're going to read later in this text, he's able to do way beyond anything that we could ask or think. Why? Because his glory is rich. He has an excess, an unending supply of power to answer our prayers. He says, pray that according to the riches of God's glory that God might grant you to be strengthened with the power of the Spirit in your inner being. Pray that God might flip the switch for you, as it were, in you realizing the power of God in your life. This isn't to say that the Holy Spirit is kind of this um, part of God that comes and goes with us. We, We read earlier in this letter that we are sealed in the Spirit, that the Spirit is a part of us at salvation. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't get like, you know, Spirit 1.0 and there's future downloads. We get the whole of the Spirit. He resides in you and I as followers of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying, though. Uh, Simply because you are positionally in Christ and because of your position in Christ, you are indwelt by the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you're living by the Spirit's power. You need to pray that into being. You need to surrender like we just sang a little while ago. You need to submit and say, take everything. And in the place of my power and of my strength and of my will, Put yours. By the strength of the Spirit, I want to live my life. Now, I, I think sometimes we just don't understand what we have in Christ. And we live these feeble, broken, you know, just pain-filled lives. And I'm not saying that God's going to make everything, you know, rosy and simple. But I am saying that no matter what circumstances you and I face, the power of the Spirit is more than enough to get us through everything in life. Going back to Thanksgiving uh, dinner, I, I, if you were here last week, I talked about the fact that we did our turkey differently. We, we did what's called spatchcocking. We spatchcocked our bird. And uh, my son saw this online. He said, Dad, you got to do this. It's going to be the best bird ever. And so he sent me the link on YouTube to, to figure out how to spatchcock the bird. And all it is is basically you cut the backbone out of a turkey. So it's not this big ball in your oven. It's kind of flat. And it is really good. I'll, I'll verify. He was right. But I'd never spatchcocked a bird. I thought it was a made-up word. I thought he was making up words. 
And so uh, I get up uh, you know, early on Thanksgiving morning to, to dress this bird and get this thing ready to cook, and I turn on the YouTube video sent me, and the first thing, the first screen says, okay, take your poultry uh, shears. I said, pardon me, what? <laughs> a poultry shear, did, did you, does anybody have poultry shears? Wow, you guys are way cooler than me. <laughs> I mean, we're just trying to find scissors in my house, let alone poultry shear, yeah. And so it says to take my poultry shears and, you know, to delicately cut along the ribs of this turkey and remove the, you know, and I was like, well, we don't have that. And so I'm thinking, well, I'll use a knife. And so I took one of these knives and it wasn't doing it at all. And it was just kind of butchering the, uh, the meat of the bird. And I was like, there's got to be something better. And then it came to me. I have a garage full of power tools. <laughs> and so I went out to my garage and I secured my jigsaw. I changed the blade, everybody calm down. <laughs> but I went in there, and what took the guy on the uh, video 30 seconds to do, I did in five. What's going on? <laughs> Backbone removed. I was like, bring your turkeys to me. <laughs> I'm never doing a turkey another way, and I'm using that saw every time. First saw I saw was my sawzalls. Anybody know what that is? That was going to be, a, you know, a little too much, but it uh, worked great. Now that, just so you know, that was the second time I'd used my jigsaw. <laughs> I bought it once for a project years ago and used it for that project, and it's been sitting in a drawer in my garage for years. But as need arised, it was there for me. You know, uh, many of you have been Christians for a long time, and perhaps you've seen the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you've seen his power manifest in the things that you've experienced. But I would guess, if you're like me, there's probably lots of times that you just pass over that option. You walk right past your garage and all the great power tools that you have in it, so to speak. And you try to hammer away at something with something that will never do the job. Your own strength, your own wisdom. And all... Paul wants you to pray is that you would be empowered by the spirit that is within you to do what only he can do. He wants all this so that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now this sounds just you know, like a very straight theological verse. That, in fact, who here when you were uh, you know, led to follow Jesus Christ and have faith and then were told to accept Christ into your heart? Anybody? This is probably one of the verses that kind of has led to that vernacular, you know, accept Jesus in your heart. We, Jesus is meant to dwell in our inner beings, in the, in, the, in the cores of who we are. But the word dwell here is something that you, you wouldn't otherwise understand in Greek if, 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 you know, I didn't read a book about Greek and, and learn it myself. It's not just simply kind of hang out in your heart. The word dwell here is kat, katoikeo, and it uh, basically means not just visit your heart, not just kind of be in your heart, but it means to rule your heart. Like a king rules his palace, like a lord rules his manor, like a mother rules her roost. Uh, we are to allow Jesus to rule in our hearts. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't happen. Unless we submit to the power of the Holy Spirit and he overcomes our flesh and our desire to sit on our throne, it just doesn't happen. But Jesus is not meant to be this occasional visitor in our lives, this, this uh, you know, opportune hero 
That's how a lot of Christians see Jesus. Hey, I'll, I'll be fine without you until I need you. And then when I get on the red phone, you better be there. You better bail me out of this situation. And once the situation's over, you can go back to wherever it is you are in my house in that one room where I keep you. But I'll go back to sitting on my throne. That's not how it's meant to be, Christians. Jesus isn't our butler. He's not our hero. He's not our cape crusader. He's, he's our Lord. He's our master. He's our king. A lot of us have you know, what I call Carrie Underwood theology. Carrie Underwood's, I'm sure, a lovely lady, and I trust that she believes in Jesus. Uh, but she wrote this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, a few years back. Remember that? Horrible theology. Horrible theology. You know why? Because it implies that for most of your life, you got the wheel. I'm just driving along doing what I want, and when, when trouble comes, hey, Jesus, slide out of that passenger seat. Take the wheel. Fix this mess. And then when things are fine, thank you, Jesus. We have the impression that our, our lives, our cars, are ours to drive. Uh, John Weaver's one of our pastors. He showed me a video of uh, him driving his uh, 16-year-old son, Caleb, home from school. And, and John had bought his first car for Caleb. We got this sweet deal. And, uh, and so Caleb was going to be able to drive this car. And, uh, they were driving up on the house and and John's position, his phone camera, so that he can, you know, film Caleb's reaction. <coughs> and, Kay, and John says, Caleb, what's that? And uh, Caleb says, that's my car. And John says, whose car? It's one of my favorite lines on the whole video. And Caleb quickly says, your car, your car, your car. <laughs> yeah. Now, your, your life, my life, is, it's not ours. It's not our car. God's. It's it's our our hearts are Christ's. We've been crucified with Him. We no longer live. It's Christ who lives in us. Now, Paul wouldn't ask us to, or wouldn't pray this for the Ephesians and imply that we should pray it for our own churches if it wasn't a problem for us in displacing Christ as the ruler of our hearts. But when you pray, will you do that? Would you pray, first of all, that we'd realize the power of the Spirit that we have at our disposal? Would you pray that that power enables us to allow Christ to dwell in our hearts? Would you ask, uh, secondly, that we'd be rooted and grounded in love? Ask that we'd be rooted and grounded in love. Paul goes on in his prayer and he says, um, uh, I, I pray that you would experience the power of the, the Spirit, his strength, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you... And then he kind of gives this little, you know, phrase, this assumption that you, and I assume you will be rooted and grounded in love, will come to know the love of Christ. That's the next part. We'll get to that in a second. He says, I pray that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Two, two great words that kind of go to different parts of our country. Rooted goes to the, the fields where we grow our, our, our food. It's It's agricultural. And it talks about, you know, having roots that go down deep into this thing. Uh, called love. It goes to the, the cities where we have these tall, immense buildings, and it goes to the foundational of architecture. It says, I, I pray that you be grounded, foundationally set upon love. Love, we know, is, is the marker of the Christ life. They shall know we are Christians by our love, as we sang in the 70s, those of us who were there. Yeah, but did you know that everything else we, that we experience in Christ is meant to be experienced 
as we are rooted and grounded in this love? What kind of love is Paul speaking of? Contextually, it has to be in part the love that we as Christians experience in the body of Christ because he goes on and in verse 18 he says this, that you may have the strength to comprehend with who? With all the saints. In the context of, of the rest of the body of Christ, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love so that you could comprehend with all of us the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. <laughs> it's, uh, it's basically Paul saying, listen, if, if you want to learn love, you've got to experience love. Like, I can write to you about what love is. He does in 1 Corinthians. He tells us love is patient, love is kind, right? Who's heard that at a wedding, right? There's all kinds of uh, scripture that helps us understand cognitively what love is, but he's saying this, man, unless you are in a loving relationship with someone, unless you are in the church and experiencing Christ's love with the members of the body, then you can't really truly understand the love of Christ. It's like a location joke. Anybody ever told one of those? Now, by location joke, I mean you get with someone that you shared an experience with and you're just laughing hysterically about the things that went on at that period of life, but there's other people in the room who weren't there and they want to laugh too and so you try to explain it to them. Who's ever done this? You try to explain to them what's going on and the, the more you explain it, the dumber it sounds. Has anybody been there? And they're just looking at you like, that's not funny at all. And so exasperated, you just look at them and say what? You had to, you had to be there. And did you know that the learning of love is that you had to be there experience. You gotta be there. You gotta be in the context of relationship to fully grasp or to begin to grasp even the love that Christ has for us. We, we know from last week that uh, Christ uses the church or God uses his church uh, to, to basically teach his angels. This is what we read last week. He says, listen, I, I pray that uh, uh, the church might show the manifold wisdom of God uh, and make it known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. If you were here last week, you know that we talked about the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. They're the angels. God's angels, our adversaries' angels. We call them demons. But here's, here's what Paul was saying. He's saying, listen, man, uh, the manifold wisdom of God shows up in this classroom that is the body of Christ. God teaches angels who would never know otherwise God's grace and mercy, the depths of God's love. He teaches angelic beings who he is through the church. It's no wonder then that he uses the church to teach the church parts of him that we would never understand otherwise. Like everybody knows that love forgives. Anybody ever known Christians that got bent out of shape with each other? Okay, when forgiveness comes into that relationship, guess what you see when, when you experience forgiveness or when you give forgiveness? You see the brand of love that Christ loves us with. Love is generous. When you bring potatoes and gravy in, and we share that with our community, it is an emblem, an example of the love of Christ. May God root us and ground us in love so that uh, we might go on to understand and comprehend who he is. But can I just say this real quick? If, if that's true that we best learn love in the context of relationship, um, it's really important that we're around each other. 
it's really important that you go uh, from maybe just being someone who sits in one of these black chairs to, to knowing some people who sit next to you, to entering in a, a relationship with them to the point where you can experience love from them and show love to them. You know, uh, as, as, as technology has progressed, it's gotten easier and easier to not experience this part of the Christ life. We uh, put our, uh, our sermons online. Hi, everybody who's watching. And listen, I'm not going to pound on people who are watching online. I've watched our church online. I think it's a great service. I think it's a great opportunity for us to stay connected when we're traveling or when our kids are sick or when we're sick. Or, you know, if, if you've moved away and, and, and you no longer can come to our church and you want to stay connected to us through the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the stream, great. It's awesome. Here's what I am concerned about. Like so many other things in our technology-filled world, uh, as we make things easier, we lose important parts of us. Like relationships in general, social media has taken you know, a big chunk out of us just doing face-to-face time and doing the hard work of really dealing with each other. Because we can just fire stuff through posts as much as we want, you know, with impunity and have no recourse. I'm not against social media. Everybody's like, oh, I gotta get rid of Facebook. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's not an either or, it's a both and. And if, if we just settle for going to church online because it's easier, I don't know if that's right. In fact, I know it's not right because it keeps us from being a part of each other and knowing each other and going deeper with each other in the context of relationships. So let's be around each other. Let's love each other and be rooted and grounded in love. The third thing that he prays for is this. I ask that we might, uh, Paul asks uh, God that the Ephesians might comprehend the love of Christ. And if you're praying for our church, would you ask that God would help us comprehend the love that Christ has for us. Look what these verses say. It says, uh, that, uh, so that as we are rooted and grounded in love, we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. That we may know the, the breadth, that's the width, and the length, that's you know the, the, the length and, and the height and the depth of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, that you and I may be filled with the fullness of God. Uh, Paul just prayed that something could happen in our lives and in the lives of the Ephesians that can, he says can never happen. He says, I pray that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, what's up with that, Paul? How are we supposed to know something we can't fully know? Anybody ever, uh, you know, like calculus? Who, who tried calculus in high school and dropped it? Anybody? Be, be proud, right? And you went, you know, you thought you were smart enough and you went the first week and you saw that there weren't any numbers in calculus, they were just all these symbols and letters. And you're like, wait a minute. I don't have any hope of getting this. And so you dropped it and took, you know, home ec instead or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot of times when people, you know, come to the, the vastness of God, they get frustrated and just be like, ah, I'm not going to get this. No, understand what Paul is saying is that, yeah, you're not going to fully grasp the entirety of the love of Christ, but start. Move in that direction. Like, you and I aren't going to fully be perfect in our Christ-likeness in this life. But guess what? The Bible says over and over again, let's go. Let's move in that direction. Rather than just saying it'll never happen, I'm not going to try. Paul says, no, I pray that you can begin to comprehend, begin to understand the love that Christ has for us. He puts it in terms of those superlatives, the, 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 the width and the length and the height. We should live in constant wow over the love of Christ, over the fact that his love is wide. We should be amazed that Christ's love is wide enough to embrace this whole world. 
No one slips through. We should be in awe of the fact that Christ's love is long. It never ends. That's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13. The last thing, the last descriptor of love that he gives in that long list, that love is patient, love is kind. The last thing he says is that love never ends. It does not fail. What a capper on a description list. It's just not going to end. God's love for you and for me is spiked at 11 and it never ends. It's perfect without fail. He talks about the height of Christ's love. When I think of height, I think of going from, you know, the basement to the penthouse. And isn't that what all of us did? As we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we went from being dead in our trespasses and sins, buried as children of wrath, hopeless and helpless, but Christ came. He died, he rose again. And he didn't just raise us from death to life, that's enough height right there, right? But he took us from death to life and he sat us at the right hand of the Father in Christ. We are joint heirs with Jesus. That's the height of Christ's love. What's the depth of Christ's love? I think from up to down. And if you read Philippians, Paul wrote this one too. He says, listen, you know what? Your, your attitudes should be the same as Christ, who um, considering equality with God something not to be grasped, he emptied himself. He went from the penthouse to the world. He went from heaven to earth. We're going to celebrate it here in just a little bit. It's called Christmas. He became one of us so that by his love and through his life, and sacrifice and resurrection, we might be brought back into a relationship with God. Oh, that we would begin to understand those things and that we would live in awe of those things. Why? We could pray for all kinds of stuff for our church. Why does Paul ask for these things when he prays for the Ephesians? He could pray that the church grows. I pray that there's more and more people there, and certainly that's something we could and should pray for. But he could pray, you know, that, you know, uh, uh, that, that Satan's attacks would be uh, you know, limited and, 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 and diminished and, and eradicated. He, he can pray all kinds of things for this church, but what does he ask for when he prays for the Ephesians? He asks for them. By God's Spirit to allow Christ to dwell in their hearts. He asks for them to have the power of the Spirit for Christ to dwell in their hearts, for them to live in love, and for, the know, for them to know the love of Christ. You know why I think he asks for those things? Because he understands that all of those other requests start with those things being in place. Like, show me a church that has truly grown. Not because of gimmicks, not because of the it cool factor, but because the power of the Spirit is present. Show me a church that's done that, and I'll show you a church full of people who understand that I need the power of the Spirit, I need to let Christ dwell in my heart, I need to walk in love, and I need to be in awe of the love of Christ. And, and I'll show you a church that responds by serving and belonging and worshiping and multiplying. As all those things are in place, we can't help but do the other stuff. It's just what flows out of someone who has had God answer those prayers in their lives. Let me finish by uh, just reading you, starting in verse 20. Can we just go right to that, Matt? Just start in verse 20. This is one of the things you've probably heard me quote. You've probably heard it quoted. If you've gone to church all your life, you've heard this one over and over again. It's called a doxology. As the band comes out and plays, we're going to sing a song and close our service. But here in this doxology, Paul, after reporting his prayer for the Ephesians, kind of gives the, the thinking or the reasoning behind his confidence uh, that these prayers can be answered. He talks about the glory of God. That's what doxology means. Doxa means glory. 
And logos means words. It's glory words. He just gives some glory words here. And he says, now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, superlative words there, way beyond, to do far more abundantly uh, than all that we ask, all that we pray for, God can do more. His riches and his glory are inexhaustible. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we could think. You know, there's stuff that we've not even been able to piece together in our minds that God knows and sees and is going to accomplish in our lives. You and I have been blessed by those unseen, uncalled for, unprayed for miracles in our life. God knew you needed it and he provided for you in his power. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, the power of that spirit, to him, verse 21, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Paul's prayer should be our prayer for ourselves and for our church, that we'd have the power of the spirit alive in us, not just a part of us, but alive in us, that by the power of the Spirit, we would allow Christ not to just be a, an occasional visitor, visitor a, a, you know, a, a, a once in a while hero in our lives, but be the constant king of our worlds and our hearts. That love would be what we're rooted in. Everything that we do and say and think would be rooted and grounded in love and that we would be in, in just constant awe of the love of Christ and all that he's done for us. If we can do that, Everything else that we need as a church, it's going to be in place. It's going to be postured because we have first things first. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us this morning was Paul's prayer for his friends in Ephesus. I pray that according to the riches of your glory, you might grant us to be strengthened with your power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And the church said...